0: Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30. says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel, and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you would speak to us this morning. Fill our hearts with faith, even as we are reading about faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. Okay, yeah, thank you. One last announcement. Tuesday night, women's study uh, for this week alone is canceled because of the Thanksgiving holiday. So women, Tuesday night, no women's study. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 11, chapter all about faith. Faith, what is it? What is it not? What uh, does it look like? What does it produce in our life? That is what Hebrews chapter 11 is all about. Uh, chapter 11, verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we want to know what faith is because we want to please God. And so we left off last week in verse 30 that says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. And so as we discussed last week, the setting there in Jericho was this. God had brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt where they had been slaves for 400 years. He promised to take them to a land which they could call their own, the promised land, uh, the land we know today as Israel. He took them out of Egypt right up to the border of the land, but they refused to go in. They heard reports about fortified cities in the land, fortified cities. Cities with walls around them which were impenetrable. Uh, They heard about giants in the land. They heard about the foreign armies uh, that would be waiting uh, for them there. They became overcome by fear, overcome by unbelief, and they refused to go in. So what happened next? They wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. And after 40 years in the wilderness, the Lord led them back to the border Once again, to the border, by this time, they had discovered what the fruit of unbelief and fear was. Unbelief and fear always brings about a wilderness experience in our life and in our hearts. And so they were no longer interested in that. So this time, when they came right up to the border, they set aside their fear, they set aside their unbelief, and by faith, that's what this chapter is all about, faith, we want to know what faith is, because without faith, it's impossible to please God, they crossed the River Jordan and went into the land of Israel. And what was the first thing uh, that they met? Jericho, a fortified city. Surrounded by walls, 50 to 80 feet tall, 30 feet thick, a fortified city. The very thing that 40 years earlier they had feared so much. They turned back 40 years earlier because of just the thought of coming up against such a thing, a walled city. But, God, uh, but now they, uh, they, they had come into the promised land by faith. The first thing that they meet is this fortify city what am I going to do how, how are we going to take this city so often this is what happened when happens when a first person first comes to Jesus Christ they by they faith they go in and right before them they see a walled city some area in their life where the, the Lord requires obedience and and it's like okay go do it I want you to take that city it's like, well what do we do now well God called, called them to take it and how were they going to take it? March around the city for seven days. Say, what? By faith, that's what they did. And the walls came down and they took the city. I'm not going to go into all this, but uh, actual, actually uh, the uh, Discovery Channel did a a, a a show on this about how Uh, Jericho, uh, they did archaeological uh, uh, digging and they were able to demonstrate that uh, the walls Uh, that were around the city, underneath the rubble, that they did not come down over a period of years. Usually ruins are like that. They came down instantly. Of course, they were saying an earthquake. May have been an earthquake uh, that came about uh, by that shout. I don't know, but uh, that's what happened. And verse 30 says, "...by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days." And then, closely related to it, the life of Rahab. Verse 31 says, By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Now, who is Rahab? Who is Rahab? Well, uh, let's find out. Please turn with me to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter Two verses one through thirteen. Joshua Chapter two verses one through thirteen. Joshua Chapter two verses one through thirteen. It says, "Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia grove to spy secretly, saying, "Go view the land, especially Jericho." So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho to the king of Jericho, saying, "Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country." So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out, where the men went, went I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. Verse six, ver, verse 6, but she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the roads to uh, the Jordan to the fords, and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has uh, fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father and my uh, mother and my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, our lives for yours, if none of you... Uh, tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will de- deal kindly with you. And so, uh, who was Rahab? Rahab was a nobody, a nobody. She was a harlot, a prostitute, working out of her father's house. The word for harlot in Hebrews 11.31 is the word porne. From which, to get the, from which we get the word pornography, who was Rahab? She was a nobody. Sometimes we think to ourselves, well, how, how I want to be a man of faith and how I want to be a woman of faith. And, and we have all kinds of images in our mind of what a man, a woman of faith looks like. And honestly, we, uh, we, we think of people like Noah and Abraham and Moses. We have these larger-than-life uh, pictures and misconceptions of those guys. And we think, so where does that leave people like me? <laughs> and when we think of uh, men and women of faith, we think of men and women who behave, who dress, who think a certain way. We think of people who've had a particular kind of upbringing, who have a particular kind of standing in the community. But listen, God is not looking for men and women who dress a certain way, who behave a certain way, or who have a particular kind of standing in the community. He's looking for someone, listen, anyone, who will simply believe and put their trust in Him. So let's read verse 31 of Hebrews chapter 11 again. Turn back with me to Hebrews uh, uh, 11. Just keep your finger in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be flipping back uh, to the Old Testament from time to time. It says again in verse 31, it says, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe, When she had received the spies with peace. So Rahab separated herself from everyone, every other person in Jericho. She had separated herself from them. Not because she was able to demonstrate to God a history of, of good works or to these people or how righteous uh, she was or her deeds or her moral behavior was different than the rest of the people of Jericho. Not because she was able to convince the Hebrew spies that she was better than anyone else. But she separated herself from everyone else by simply believing in God. It says by faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. That word is apatheo in the Greek. Apatheo from which we get the word apathetic. There's many many notice remember in, uh, in in Joshua chapter 2. It said that the whole city was terrified. They all believed in God in a sense But it says that only Rahab went forth and entrusted herself to God. Only she put herself at the mercy of God. And, and, And so that's what separated her from everything else. The others were apatheo, apathetic. They knew facts about this God, but they didn't act on those facts. They didn't entrust themselves to the Lord. That is the faith that pleases God. That is the faith that pleases God. When anyone, however random that person may be, I'm sure Rahab was the last person anyone in Jericho might think that would have entrusted herself and saved her life in Jericho. But it was that simple obedience. Verse 32 says this, And what more shall I say? For the time would f- uh, fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and also of David and Samuel and the prophets. Let me repeat that. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, and also of David and Samuel and the prophets. So, I want to briefly go through the lives of these men. And what do we want to learn from them? We want to learn about the faith that pleases God because we want to please God. And so, let's turn back again to Judges chapter 6. I just want to go briefly through the lives of of these men here, Judges chapter 6, Judges chapter 6, Judges is I think seven books from the left of the beginning of your Bible, Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, verse 1 says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves dens, caves, strongholds, which are in the mountains. And so it was whenever Israel had sown, meaning they had planted seed for their harvest, the Midianites would come up and also the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents Coming in as numerous as locusts, both they and their camels were without number and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So the Israelites had made a big mess of their life. They are living in dens and caves and nooks and crannies in the mountains. Why? the midians were wiping them out. Why verse 1 says the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They had forsaken God. So the Lord had removed their protection from them. The Lord's not going to sustain or hold up a life that is being living living uh, in disobedience to his word. And so it's he removed his protection from them. And so they would do they would put their whole harvest together. They would they would seed, they would uh, uh, sow the, 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 the soil. They would water it. They would tend to it. They would harvest it. They would uh, prepare all the food. And then the Midianites would just come in and take everything away from them. An utterly demoralizing season in the life um, of Israel. And then in verse 11, it says this, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abirzite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he sent him. So he said to him, Gideon said to the Lord, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. And now go to verse 25. It says, Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to Gideon, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut it down the wooden cut down the wooden image that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down so he said first things first Gideon you go and you cut down that altar to Baal that is in front of your, uh, your father's house. Now, uh, you look at Gideon and you may say, you know, why is this guy uh, listed in Hebrews chapter 11 as a man of faith? If all you knew about Gideon w- w- was in uh, uh, Judges chapter 6, you would be asking that. Why is this guy in Hebrews chapter 11 God tells Gideon to do something, and what does Gideon do? He starts blaming God for all of Israel's problems. Verse 13 says, if you're, if you're with us, God, then why have all these horrible things happened? And so this is always really the, the, the cry of someone who's been living a life of disobedience. They don't look at their disobedience and they just blame everything on on the Lord. And so Gideon's blaming God for his circumstances when he should be blaming himself and and the Israelites for turning away from God. But if that weren't enough, he's filled with excuses. How can I save uh, Israel, he says in verse 15. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my father's house. I'm a shrimp, he's saying basically. Don't call on me. And now as if, as if that weren't enough, look at him. He, uh, he's also a coward. God tells him uh, in verse 25 to cut down the altar to Baal. In verse 27 it says uh, that because he was filled with fear, he did it at night. So let's read verse 27. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said him to do, but because he feared his father's household, and all the men of the city, too much to do it by day, he did it by night. So Gideon, he's blaming God for his problems, he's filled with excuses, and he's a coward. But listen, he did what God told him to do, right? The man did what God told him to do. He may be blaming God, angry at God, shaking his fist at God, filled with excuses. Uh, He may be a coward, but he did what God told him to do. Listen, God is looking for the faith that obeys. God is looking for the faith that obeys. That is the faith that pleases God. And so you may be sitting here this morning. You may be angry at God. You may be a mess, filled with excuses, fearful, and you may be confused. God can deal with that. God can work with that. God is saying to you, okay, I hear you, you're angry at me, you're, you're full of excuses, you're fearful, but I dare you, obey me. Simply obey my word. And see what I can do in your life. I dare you. Obey me. Notice how in chapter 6, what's incredibly noticeable to me is that God never argues with Gideon. He's saying all this stuff, making excuses, blaming God, thinking of all the reasons he's not going to be able to do. But God never even responds to any of this stuff. He just presses on uh, with him and says, Gideon, okay, I get all that, but listen, lay it aside and... Obey. The Lord faithfully persists with him. Lay it aside, Gideon, and obey. And that's what he did. And what happened? Gideon saw that the Lord was true to his word. He saw the faithfulness of God and went on to do great things for the Lord. He defeated 120,000 Midianites with 300 men and he restored peace and worship of God in Israel. It started with what? Simple obedience. God said, you want to be used by me? You got to remove this thing from your life. And he was really fearful of it and he did it at night but he did it. Some of you, you know, you're not angry at the Lord. You're not making up excuses. You're not shaking your fist at God. And you're not a coward. But you're not obeying the Lord in your life. There's something in your life, there's an altar to Baal somewhere in your heart and you're just saying no. No. That's not the faith that pleases God. God wants simple obedience. Regardless of the trappings that may be around it, he just wants simple obedience. Now Hebrews 11.32, you don't have to turn back there, but it says, What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson. Who's Barak? Who's he? The President of the United States. <laughs> that's, not, that's, not, that's not this guy. Turn with me back to Judges chapter 4. A fascinating account. And the last guy you would think that would end up in Hebrews chapter 11. Chapter 4, when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. This, by the way, is the pattern throughout the book of Judges, a period of 450 years. You see this cycle. They do evil in the sight of the Lord. God removes his protection. The enemies come upon them. They cry out to the Lord. He sends a deliverer, and he gives them a measure of peace. And so... It, verse 1 says again, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harosheth Her- Hagoyim. and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron. And for 20 years he harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, the prophetess, was wife of Lapidoth, who was judging Israel at the time. And she would sit under the palm tree at Deborah between Ray, Ray, Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak. There he is Barak, the son of Abinom from Kedesh and Naphtali. And said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. And against you, I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army and his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now you may say, what's up with this guy? This guy's a Sissy. He's a pansy. This Barak, this Barak, look, even Deborah's calling him a pansy. Verse 9, and so she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Cicero into the hand of a woman. So even she's calling the guy a sissy. Barak, Barak, who is this guy? Well, listen, he may have been a sissy. He may have been a coward, a pansy. But what? He did what the Lord told him to do. He did what the Lord told him to do. Verse 10 says, And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. And then the rest of the chapter is just about him going up by faith and defeating the enemy. He did what God asked him to do. And, you, you know, you sitting here this morning, you may not be a pansy. You may not be a, 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 a sissy or a coward. But you're not simply obeying God's word. And meanwhile, you know, you're, you're, you're pointing the finger at the body of Christ, everyone else in the world. Look what this is wrong with them. Look what th- th- that is wrong with them. But you have a log in your own eyes. As you point out the sliver in other people's eyes, you have a log in your own eyes. That log is disobedience. Here we see the faith that pleases God. God's looking for someone. Listen, anyone, a nobody, a prostitute, a pansy, a sissy, anyone who will simply obey his word. Next one, Samson. Samson. Turn with me to Judges chapter 16. Judges chapter 16. Now Samson is a familiar figure to many of us. His parents put him under a Nazarene vow. Uh, What's a Nazarene vow? The Mosaic law. In the book of Numbers there was a law given to the nation of Israel where any man or woman who wanted to make a special vow of holiness, a, a special season of dedication to the Lord, Uh, They took a Nazarene vow, and by this, uh, they agreed to uh, never cut their hair, never drink wine or anything from uh, a grape, and they agreed never to touch an an unclean thing, such as a a dead person. And so they were consecrating themselves to the Lord for a season of time. Well, in the Bible, there are three examples of people, uh, men... Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist, who were put under a Nazarite vow by their parents for their whole lives. Thanks, Mom. I didn't want a haircut anyway, you know. <laughs> you know, th- th- that's for their whole lives. What I never really knew until I started studying the, the book of uh, Numbers is, was, was 99% of people who took a Nazarene vow just did for a short season of time. These guys were put under the vow for their whole lives, and they didn't even have a choice. So Samson was under a Nazarene vow, and as long as he abided by that vow, this wasn't the case for everyone who uh, takes uh, a Nazarene vow, so don't get any ideas in your head. As long as he ab- abided by the vow, he had extraordinary strength. Didn't cut his hair, stayed away from uh, wine or the uh, the. Or the Anything from grapes. He had extraordinary strength. At one time, he single handedly killed a hundred Philistines. Another time, he killed a thousand with the jawbone of a donkey. In chapter 14 of Judges, it says he tore a lion apart as one would tear apart a young goat. One time, he got angry and, and he ripped out the gate. One of those monstrous huge gates of one of the ancient cities. He just ripped the thing out and started carrying it around. Look what I got. You know, this is this uh, uh, Samson. But listen, all the while, he was a very religious man. God hates religion. He loves relationship. Jesus came to destroy religion and introduce relationship. But Samson was a very religious man in the sense that he kept his religious Nazarene vow. But it was just religion, which is always external. And so he, would, he was a hypocrite. He would satisfy the lust of his own flesh, woman after, woman after woman after woman after woman. And he thought nothing of this lifestyle. For Samson, there was nothing at all wrong. never dawns on him to think twice about what he's doing. He treated it almost as a right of his and as if normal rules did not apply to him. But listen, here's what to me made the life of Samson so unusual. Just study those three or four chapters. It's just fascinating. The thing that made his life so unusual, even more than his extraordinary strength, it's that you read about this guy. He's a leader in Israel. He's one of the judges. And chapter after chapter after chapter, you don't see even the slightest trace of spirituality. You, not even, there's no communion with God. You never see him talking with God. He is not asking God for anything. He has no friends with the people of God. He never asks anyone any advice about anything. He goes to battle always by himself. He was an army of one. He, 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 rarely do you ever see him even approaching uh, any of the, uh, of the children of God, the children of Israel. He's always uh, winning battles only, all by himself, no help from anyone whatsoever, always relying on his own strength and his strength alone. When he sought counsel, he received it from his own heart, did whatever his own heart was telling him to do. He lived a completely isolated life, which, by the way, guys, that's a guy thing that you need to really seek the Lord after if you're into that kind of guy thing. But anyway, another sermon. We'll let Pastor Scott give that sermon. But anyway. But, he, but listen, the whole while he lived a completely isolated life, but he kept his religious vows. Until when? Until Delilah. 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 Now, most of you know about Delilah. She coaxed Samson into cutting his hair off. She betrayed him. The Philistines captured him, cut out both of his eyes, and threw him into prison. Eek! Ah. That's like a, quite a word description. This muscle bound guy with these two eyeballs, whatever, gouged out. That's really ugly sights. And so with that lovely introduction, uh, Judges chapter 16, Judges chapter 16, go to verse uh, 23. It says, now the lords of the Philistine, I guess we should uh, go back to uh, chapter, uh, to verse 22. It says, However, the hair of his head, he's in prison now, began to grow again after it had been shaven. Now the lords of the Philistine, verse 23, gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. And when the people saw them, they praised their God. And they said, our God has delivered us into the hands of our enemy, the destroyer of our land, and the one who multiplied our dead. And so it happened when their hearts were merry that they said, call for Samson that he may perform for us. So they called for Samson from the prison and he performed for them. And they stationed him between the pillars. And then Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars which support the temple so that I can lean on them. Now the temple was full with men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof watching while Samson performed. Then Samson called to the Lord saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this one, so God that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistine for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple, and he braced himself against them, one on his right hand, the other on the left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the lords and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. Samson. The guy... (coughs) Who wasted virtually his entire life? You look at his life and you think, "What a waste! All these giftings—his strength, his power, his ability—just wasted. Wasted on what? Wasted on himself." And you know, it, it, you, you look at the life of Samson, and as you read uh, verses, uh, you know, chapters uh, thirteen and 14, and 15, you're thinking to yourself, it's only a matter of time. It was inevitable. This guy is going to fall, and he is going to fall big time. And so here in chapter 16, he's captured, his eyes gouged out, he's in prison, but something happened to Samson in prison. Something happens there. Samson has a lot of time on his hands to think. He has a lot of time to think how empty his life has been, how much he wasted his giftings and his strength, how salmon-centric was his life, how shallow his life had been, the sexual exploits, the crazy Antics, the isolation from everyone and everybody. He realized that he had lived his whole life um, in the power of his own strength. But listen, most importantly, he realized for the first time how weak he was. He was so weak. And look at verse 26, fascinating verse. It says, then Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars which support the temple so that I can lean on them. Samson. Samson being led around by who, it says? A little boy. Samson asking for help from who? A child. And in verse 28, you see for the first time in his entire life, Samson having communion with God. First time we ever see him pray in his entire life. His entire life filled with all the exploits that he had done. You see him cry out to the Lord for the first time, O oh Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray just this once and then that wonderful line at the end of verse 30 it says so the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life listen Samson's not an isolated case this is the faith that pleases God it's the faith that dies once for all to the flesh The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. What's he mean when he says that? It's just a recognition day by day, hour by hour of our own weakness. When you die to your own strength, when you recognize your weakness, when you give up all self-sufficiency and you just cry out to the Lord, utterly dependent upon him. You have the faith that pleases God. You now have the faith that pleases God. And listen, God delights in restoring that kind of life. It it doesn't matter what kind of craziness or ugliness or rebellion or stubbornness your life has produced. God delights in restoring that kind of life. And I can't tell you how many men and women I have had in counseling. And we've had in counseling here at Calvary Chapel. Men and women who, like Samson, they grew up in a religious family, they spent the better part of their life, they spent really all of their life holding on to some sort of religious tradition in their life, all the while trashing their life, all their gifts, their strengths, their ability, trashing it on drugs and on alcohol, trashing it on sexual immorality and sensuality, trashing it on pornography, on self-indulgence. And listen, God is love. He loves to restore that kind of life. Don't let Satan convince you that God doesn't want to restore you. He loves going after the one that has left uh, the 99. He loves that. He loves you. He loves to take back that which has been stolen by the enemy. Why should we ever think that God wants the enemy to keep what is his? You know, the thought is absurd. God loves you. He wants to restore you. You know, some of you here today have extraordinary talents. You may never have taken a fall, even remotely similar to Samson. You may, in fact, you may be sort of On top of the wave of life, extraordinary talented, strong giftings, a strong will, a strong personality, big time achievements already in your life. But the Lord's dealing with you. He's been showing you that you have lived your life in the power of your own strength. He's showing you that he wants something very different from you. He's showing you, that, uh, that, uh, uh, he's showing you these things because he wants to, you to put all your talents, all your gifting, he wants you to put your very strong will, your, your abilities, your personality, your achievements, he wants you to put them on the altar. He wants you to give them uh, all up uh, to him. He doesn't want to remove his protection and have your eyes gouged out. And how many have we seen come into this church with their, with, with their eyes gouged out and praise the Lord they're coming here for restoration. But God doesn't want that for you. You're his child. God loves to restore lives. And he does so and we are restored by that simple faith of laying Everything aside and crying out to him, utterly depend upon him. That is the faith that pleases God. Now, turn back with me uh, to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 32 says, What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. Jephthah. It's kind of like Barak. Who is he? Who's Jephthah? Well, we won't turn there now. Uh, The story of Jephthah is in Judges chapter 11 and 12, actually. But listen how Jephthah is introduced in Judges chapter 1, verse 1. He's introduced this way. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor But he was the son of a harlot. That's how he's introduced. Verse 2 says, Gilead's wife, Gilead was Jephthah's father. Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob, and worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went raiding with him. Who's Jephthah? Jephthah was a man born uh, after, uh, the, after his father had, had some fling some night with a prostitute. His brothers, half-brothers, despised him, drove him out, not only out of their home, they drove him out of their city. And he was so angry, he was so filled with anger, Anger, rather, and bitterness that, that he led a life of unabashed crime, raiding houses, pillaging, robbing, probably murdering. He was a bandit. That's who Jephthah was. But over time, the land of Israel, once again, having forsaken God, overrun by the Ammonites, what do the Israelites do? They go out to Jephthah. And they say, can you come back and, like, save us? And he, say, he says to them, wait, I thought you drove me out. And they're like, well, yeah, but we want you back now. He comes back. Someone, 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 somewhere along the way had told him about God, and he turns from the life of a marauder, a raider, a bandit, and he starts living for God. Does anyone see a pattern here? Does anyone see a pattern? Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. They're held up in the word of God as having a faith that pleases God a faith that pleases God. God is looking, listen, for anyone, literally, anyone, regardless of who they are, what their background is, to simply obey. And I don't know how it can be any clear from the, these, this one verse, verse 32 here, That you and I have no excuse. We have no excuse. The Bible says that men and women are without excuse. That God has made himself clearly known. Well, he's clearly made himself known in this verse this morning, verse 32. And for the Lord to do a work in and through you, the message is this. All he requires is simple obedience to his word. You have an altar to Baal in your heart, in your life. You know what it is. The Lord knows what it is. He wants simple obedience. He wants you to take it out. And then he wants to go on and use you. He doesn't require anything else. It doesn't require that you demonstrate that you're better than the people of Jericho. It doesn't want you to demonstrate you're better than uh, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers. workers uh, Like, you know, all the people in Jericho, they may be all enemies of God. It doesn't matter whether you can prove you're better than Him. All He's interested in is that you lay aside your fears and you simply obey in faith. He can deal with your cowardice, your anger towards him, your pansiness, pansiness your life or your history of disobedience. He can work with all that. Those things are such a small thing for him. He just needs you to simply obey his word, and he loves to restore. He loves to work in and through his children no matter what kind of life uh, they have led. Now, I'm going to conclude here. In verse 32, I'm going to do a complete 180 on you. (laughs) Hebrews 11.32 ends with who? David and Samuel. David and Samuel. It says, What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. Also, note sort of a change there, of David and Samuel and the prophets. Now, the lives of David and Samuel present a completely different picture than the lives of Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. In fact, if you read through the life of Samuel, a fascinating life, he was the last judge, he was a prophet, he anointed David, King David, you can read through his entire life, and there's not a single clear instance of him ever doing anything wrong, this guy. He seems to li- live, have lived a life completely obedient to the Lord. He grew up in the temple. His, his, his mom gave him, when he was two or three years old, to the high priest Eli. She dedicated him to the temple after God had Uh, given her a child. She she was barren. She promised, Lord, if you give me a child, I'll dedicate him to you. She gave him to the temple. He grew up around the Word of God and then went on to live a a completely righteous life. Now, now his sons didn't do so well, (laughs) And some people speculate, well, maybe that's because he wasn't so good of a father, but that's, that is a speculation. You never see a single instance. He's always faithful to the Word of God. He always obeys, every single time, at every instance. And man, he was given so many opportunities to say, this is, this is crazy. I'm not in this anymore, and depart from, from the Lord. He never does that. And Hebrews chapter 11 says, he led that life by what? By faith. That's right. By faith. You know, sometimes we hear stories, either the drugs, the sex, and the alcohol, and we're like, wow, the person came out of that life. What faith. And yeah, you know, I, I, I love those kind of testimonies. But brothers and sisters, there is a faith that pleases God much more than that kind of faith. It is the faith that from beginning to end walks with the Lord and does not depart from Him. I was recently up at a pastor's conference uh, in up in New Hampshire, and there was a man who presented to us there. His name is Dan Finfrock. He's a, he's a guy who... to I believe he's being used as much as anyone in the entire world right now. He's, he is uh, going throughout the, really, the entire world, most dangerous places of the world, and he's teaching to pastors, hundreds, thousands of them. He's teaching them how to teach the Word of God. And He goes into the craziest places, Sudan and uh, Sri La- uh, Bangladesh and uh, uh you just name it. He goes into the, the Congo, the, the Philippines, where there's all, that, all those insurrections over there. And he teaches the word of God. Mainly, he teaches pastors how to teach the word of God. Anyway, he got up and he, um, he gave his personal testimony. And you know what he said? He gave his personal testimony. He said, I was saved when I was three or four years old, and I've never once walked away from the Lord. And he wasn't boasting He said that with utter, total humility, humility, by the way, the definition definition of humility is putting others first. He was putting others first because I needed to hear that. Not only that, he says, I've never walked away from the Lord. I have four kids. He's an older guy. Uh, He's about 60, 65 years old. He says, I have four kids. None of them have ever walked away from the Lord. They're all serving the Lord now. One of them, by the way, passed away a few years ago, but none of them walked away from the Lord. This doesn't mean that they never had a dry season in their life. It doesn't mean they didn't sin. It means they never once in their life made a decision, you know, I'm, le- I'm leaving this life for, for a while, and I'm just going to live in the world. You can only do that by faith. And you, you, you contrast to someone who has come out of the quote-unquote world. They know, the, someone who's come out of the world, and by faith they turn to the living God, they know how miserable it is living in the world. But someone who's never gone into the world doesn't know that. And all they know is temptation, that the world, the many thousand voices out there are saying to them, come to the world, it's really great here. And that's why that faith is so commendable to the Lord, Samuel, from beginning to end. And you look at his life, and the the Israelites so incredibly ungrateful for this man. Yet the Bible says he interceded, he prayed uh, for them to the very end. Uh, King Saul, who he anointed king of Israel, completely uh, abandoned all the instruction of Samuel. He never, ever does though he depart from the Lord. And he did it, how? By faith. By faith in what? In God's word. God's word says, you continue on and you don't depart unto the Lord. I'm gonna bless your life. Let me tell you, that is the, the kind of faith that pleases God. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please him. So once we've turned to the Lord, God doesn't want us going back into the world. And the Lord told me that very early on in my walk when I, when I came to him 22 years ago, backsliding is not the normal Christian life. It's not for you, Steve. By faith, we persevere on. And that's the, the, the faith that pleases God. And, and you know, it's all simple obedience. It's just all simple obeying. And God wants to use us through a life of faith.